Hyperno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hyperno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Falter Road and willkommen to Hyperno Goethe. My guest today is poet and fiction writer Liz McSkeen. Liz, great to have you here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, Liz, the name McSkeen, uh, where is that from? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's a Monaghan name, I think. Um, most of the McSkeens in Ireland would be around the Monaghan area, but we think it might be also a, an Aberdeen name. So, you know, like a lot of names, it could be either Scottish or Irish or maybe both, as I am myself, indeed. And I'm not sure whether um, Scottish people would know, but uh, I can't actually tell where the, your accent um, is from. Is it a general Scottish accent? or it, It's a West of Scotland Scottish accent, a fairly yeah. light Scottish accent at this stage because I've been in Ireland for so long that I think I've probably lost a lot of it. It's probably not as light as you think. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I'm glad. Is, is it a Glasgow accent? That's right, a yeah. Glasgow accent. Yeah. So tell us a bit about growing up in Glasgow. Well, um, I grew up with a Scottish father and an Irish mother, which would be not that unusual in the west of Scotland because although there's a big Irish Catholic minority, it's a large minority. So in a lot of ways, it would be a bit, little bit like Belfast, you know, the, you know, not in the sense that you would have different areas where Catholics and Protestants lived, but there would be a large Catholic population with Catholic schools and Protestant schools. So it was, um, yeah, very definitely a, a, a kind of a mixed culture. And did you feel like the child of immigrants? Well, you know, when you when you grow up in a certain uh, situation, unless it's very, very different, you don't really know any different. So for me, it was kind of normal. You know, there were quite a lot of people with mixed, you know, Scot- there's quite a lot of connection or, and there really always has been between Scotland and Ireland. So it didn't feel all that different. Uh, I was aware that my mother had a different accent and sometimes I used to get teased because I would come out with phrases like I do be doing or I'm after um, and the teachers would say, no, no, you don't say that. And it's only when I came to Ireland I realised that these are phrases that come directly from the Irish language. So that was really exciting to learn, but I didn't know that when I was eight, you know. Do you know that kind of, uh, that John Millington sing when when he was kind of uh, writing the Playboy, the Western world and stuff, that he used this very... This Irish that came directly from the from the translations. I I, I didn't know that. No, but it, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm only after my dinner, and he be going up the road, and she and stuff. But I remember reading that um, that people kind of laughed at it a lot and said, "Oh, he's just making this up. That it's kind of stage Irish." But in actual fact, in the West, because people were only they were the first generation moving from one language to the other, they kind of translated as they went. So the way they spoke was uh, full of stuff like I'm only after. Well, my mother was from Dublin and that was the way she spoke. You yeah. know? And it was really interesting to see the exact grammatical form in Irish. When I, I had to learn Irish when I came over here because I was a teacher. And uh, although I never got that good at it, but I learned it enough to get by, you mm-hmm. know. And it was very interesting to see the the identical grammatical structure in English um, coming from... The, it's almost as though there's a kind of a skeleton, the bones of the Irish language showing through the way, the way 
way English is spoken. And I think that gives uh, Hibernum English, I suppose it is, a, a huge richness. Yeah. And, and probably uh, useful for writing poetry. Um, well, I maybe I'm not as aware of that, although I, perhaps maybe my, my uh, way of writing poetry is informed by the fact that I have lived in both countries and that maybe the, my idiom is neither one or, the, or completely one or the other. And that's always useful, I think, if, you, some, if the voice is a little bit um, uh, different. Just again about that uh, that Irish world, that Irish Glaswegian world. Was this the space where kind of John F. Kennedy, pictures of John F. Kennedy and, and the Pope were on the wall and there was Celtic scarves and exactly, stuff? Exactly, absolutely. The, um, the, when Celtic won the European Cup, yeah, I was out in the street. Uh, and uh, yes, my father used to go to Celtic matches. He took me to one or two, but not very many because it wasn't exactly a social occasion the way GAA is here. There were only certain matches he would take me to. And um, yes, I, went, I, I, I used to be sent to school in St. Patrick's Day with a clump of shamrock. You'd get these little boxes coming up to the 17th of March uh, from Dublin, you know, the friends and family back uh, in the old country with um, Shamrock and you'd get have, have these, you know, wear these for as long as they uh, they lasted, uh, which was kind of interesting to walk through Govan with um, a big clump of Shamrock on your lapel. <laughs> and were you aware then, if there was a St. Patrick's Day, that there was also a 12th of July? Very much so, absolutely. And in fact, I've always thought that if it weren't for the sectarianism, the spectacle of an orange order, and maybe I shouldn't say this, maybe it's not a great thing to say, but it's a, it's a great spectacle. If you could take the sectarianism out of it, um, which unfortunately you couldn't because in Glasgow they would stop outside the church, you know, with a big lamb, big drum, you know, and say nasty things about the Pope. But <laughs> we always watched it, yeah. you know. So um, it's, I'm sure that that's a bit different from it was in Belfast because we didn't have the trouble. So we, you know, although it wasn't um, exactly friendly, it wasn't um, it wasn't deadly as it was. We didn't mm-hmm. have to suffer in, in that way. Uh, so, but but there was that much of a cultural crossover. Yes, I felt this year when they were talking about uh, introducing uh, a new public holiday that maybe rather than Saint Bridget's Day, they might have considered twelfth. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, I, I think very few people from the south have actually been to. Um, the 12th of July marches? No, I mean, I have friends in Belfast who's, who regularly depart on around that time, you yeah, know, because yeah. of the hassle. And then I have friends on the other side who, well, this is a long time ago, you know, people that I, I, I used to know, they thought it was great fun and they would have, you know, it was bonfires and yeah, they, weren't, the they, were, they themselves weren't sectarian yeah. people. It was yeah. just a, it was kind of like a day out. It was a festival. I suppose it depends where, um, where you are. Uh, I went to one um, in rural County Down and um, to be honest, it was really, as a spectacle, it was, it was amazing with the lambeg drums and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the whole day, it was very mild and very pleasant. There was no sense of menace or anything. Now, that's probably different in Orban, Belfast or in, in Tigers Bay or, or somewhere. I agree with you. Uh, yeah. Sorry to the, my, the listeners in Tigers Bay. That just came mm-hmm. to my mind. <laughs> One of those places like that. I think that's true. That yeah. Really, you know, like anywhere, you know, that it depends on where you are and yeah. what the experience of the people around, you know, that gives it its cultural significance. There, there is one. There is a, a, a 12th of July uh, march in Rosnaula in County Donegal. Uh, it's one of the biggest surf beaches um, in Ireland. I so, didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's the only one in the south. Mm. But I love that notion. I haven't been, but I love the notion of the crossover between the surfer, surfer culture. Well, I, I'm the, just I'm just having a mind movie as to what that might look like <laughs> <laughs> with the orange sashes and yeah. the bowler hats. Yeah. Um, uh, I can see a nice short film yeah. of that somewhere. Yeah, I kind of like the notion that it's much more reflects it kind of a 
how the different cultural things change and how there never would have been a surf culture in Ireland a generation ago even and, and now places like Rusnell are, are just completely transformed. Yes, and uh, there are places in Clare as well, I suppose, that they've picked up these habits from yeah. um, people going to foreign parts and yeah. saying, oh, our beaches are just as nice as this and our waves are just as, yeah. you know, huge. And, and, yeah, and so long as you have a, a, a nice warm wetsuit, mm. because it's not Hawaii. Mm. Um, you were saying that uh, you were a teacher. That's right. So, yeah. yeah. What did you teach? I, I, originally, I was a teacher of languages. My training yeah. is as a teacher of French and Spanish. Um, my first degree was in French and Hispanic studies, so that was Spanish, um, Portuguese, and French. Um, and when I came here, I also taught. I taught English and French, and I taught Spanish. Um, you know, part time, not never in a school. Mm-hmm. So, and I had I lived in France and Spain and Portugal for short periods of time. Uh, I was almost a year in Spain, but when I was a student, so. Tell me, did you have to learn some Irish to get a, a qualification as a teacher here? Yes. Well, my th- the qualifications yeah. w- were recognised. Okay. There was a mutual recognition of qualifications, yeah. you know, and it had that come in in the EU. But you also, to be a teacher, I don't know if it's still the case for post-primary teaching, but I know it's definitely still the case for, for primary teaching, um, that you still need um, Irish I didn't mind actually learning Irish because I I had learned a few languages already and I was very interested to learn Irish as it was not a Romance language, complete, it was a Celtic language, completely different grammar. So I found it quite exciting and I did the department oral and I did the Caratastus as well. And at the time, you know, like I could get by and now... I, I could probably, you know, say the couple of fuckle now, you know, if I had to. But I'm very rusty, and it's it's one of the things on my list to um, to improve and get back. So, when you had the background, uh, particularly in French and Spanish and Portuguese, uh, what was it like then when uh, you were learning German? Was that a very different pattern of language? Yes, from, I mean, know? this is fascinating, really, and it's one of the things I suppose that's brought me to this um, to this podcast. Really, my my um, study with the Goethe Institute. I, this is fairly recent now, it's maybe six or seven years ago, I started learning German at the Goethe Institute and then I left it because I was busy with other things, writing things, and then I went back and then I dropped it again. It's something that I really want to, to improve and to get to grips with. And I really enjoyed it much. I went with some trepidation because German has a reputation for being difficult. Other languages, you know, like in Spanish, you can get by, although any language is difficult to learn well, but there are some languages you can get by more easily at the beginning. German, I had this idea of German as being really daunting and and difficult. And I was really pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it and how much I liked it. And one of the reasons was because the grammar was completely different from the Romance languages I'd learned, but really similar to English. I had never really realised before how almost perfectly English maps on to German or vice versa. You know, there would be phrases that if you wanted to say them in French or Spanish, you know, you'd have to turn the language around and find a completely different grammatical construction. Whereas in, in German, you know, you know, somebody's saying like, that, that's my dream job or something, you know. Um, I think it's, uh, I can't remember, you, perhaps, you know, Traum or something. Traum job. Traum. Uh, yeah. Arbeiter, time arbeiter, something. Yeah, Yeah, and I remember hearing that phrase or one like, I thought, God, that is so like English. Now, of course, there are other things which is always problematic for native English speakers the genders, you know, the masculine, feminine, and then, of course, you've got the neutral as well, and then you've got the cases. Um, But in spite of that, I really like German and I really enjoyed, you know, it was circumstances really that made me stop. and. And 
Do you think, are you a bit of a language nerd, if that's not... Uh, um, I'm afraid I am. <laughs> I'm the sort of person that will sit up at night reading grammar books. Yeah, you know, some people... Yeah. I do read novels and stuff as well, but I will actually oh, read a chapter of a novel book. I, oh. I know that sounds sad, but sad but true. But isn't it kind of part of um, how we communicate and how we interact? And if you, if you break it down and you see how language structures all the pieces together, like you were saying about those... Uh, German cases and when you have the the der and the d and the das and then you have to put it all together that it, there's a kind of fascination in how we communicate and how we think of things there is and I think I mean just uh, the example that I'm thinking of now is in Irish one of the things I loved about Irish was that it seemed to me that the if you like the psychology behind the grammar was for example saying I am angry in English we say I am angry so that's as though the adjectives is attaching to uh, that is something I am whereas in Irish you say uh, there is a, an anger on me you know there is a cold on me you know there is a sadness on me and the idea that it's there it arrives and it's going to leave it's not who you are and I just think that's lovely you know and I'm afraid my German is not good enough to be able to make similar comparisons but I'm sure those whose German is better than mine which wouldn't be hard um, will be able to think of similar things you know um, yeah I suppose even um, ich habe hunger that um, I have hunger, I have hunger, I have yeah. hunger. I'm, I'm hungry and I have hunger. They're different notions of, of how we... Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, one of the other things, we're just talking about the, 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 um, the genders, I have to admit, you know, I learned quite a lot of German and over the couple of years I was there, um, but I noticed that I got stuck because the thing that you have to do at the very beginning is to learn your genders. Yeah, right? yeah. Now, I kind of didn't bother all that much, you know, and I knew I was a language. I was a language teacher, you know. I mean, I knew that this was wrong, yeah, very yeah. wrong. And then, of course, when you start to use the prepositions, uh, you're kind of uh, really snookered if you yeah. don't know your yeah, it you won't don't work. Know your it, won't, it won't fit together. It doesn't. So, and for yeah. anybody there learning beginner German, don't skip the genders. Yeah. They do actually matter. Yeah, this know? is uh, 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 German lessons with Miss Mesquite, Miss Mexkeen are uh, <laughs> like the, do, um, don't do what I did. Yeah. Did you the, coming uh, as a native English speaker and starting from there? I always found that, that the genders were really strange because why they decided that the sun was feminine and the moon was masculine. Yeah. And then you've got Das Mädchen, where the yeah, girl is, the, is, is, is neuter. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Das Fräulein. Das Fräulein, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it must be to do with the, um, you know, like the history of the language and how it evolved from, well, partly from Latin, although not so much, but from, you know, Norsk, Old Norsk and Middle English. Yeah. I don't know so much about that, but I guess it's from the uh, genesis of the language way back, you know, when it was emerging from the, the soup, you know, the DNA. What what often catches me out in German is when you say das Mädchen, because then the the pronoun is it. So, you know, uh, der Mann and he, but das Mädchen and it. Mm. So when you're speaking German and, and you have to realise that it's no no uh, the girl um, the girl is coming it's it's a it's a th- and you refer to her as it yeah not her, not she yes um, I yeah. hadn't thought of that it's kind of yeah try not try yeah. not think about it it just <laughs> 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 it just complicates things more I like to jump from from one thing to another but um, so I've been reading your novel Oh, and tell me, how did you decide to write a novel about a detective crime novel about 16th century Spain? How did you get there? Well, um, I suppose one of the reasons is that I love detective fiction myself. I'm a big fan and I, you know, 
you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a secret vice of, um, you know, I like to read my way through, you know, a particular right, you know, Inspector Morse and then Ian Rankin, Ravis and all that. I think it's a great genre. Although I write lots of things, I had embarked on uh, an, uh, various different novels, okay, but the one that finally, I thought finally um, worked was one that I was writing about St John of the Cross, who was a 16th century Spanish mystic poet that I studied when I was a student uh, of Spanish and I really liked his poetry. You know, the, 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 the phrase, the dark night of the soul, it's, it comes from um, Noche Oscura del Alma. It's his probably most famous poem. I was reading about his life and I just thought it was really interesting and I thought that I would make a detective story out of it. And to give us a bit of context, uh, John of the Cross, what's the kind of equivalent in English of John of the Cross? He would be as famous, it wouldn't be exactly the same, but he would be as famous in Spain as Shakespeare is in English. Okay. And he would be a near contemporary. He was, he yeah. was around just a little bit before Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But um, so the people in school, kids in school would learn John of the Cross po- poems and... And the Dark Night of the Soul, that's that's a poem he wrote. It is, and yeah. it's kind of a phrase that has... The way it's moved into English, is, is the meaning has changed because in that poem, the Dark Night of the Soul is joyful. It's an, um, the image of the soul as a girl going out to meet her lover, who is God. It, com- it comes from... Um, uh, the um, Song of Songs, which is a, a section of the Bible, which is very erotic, and a lot of his poetry is quite erotic. And this image of the the, the, the soul um, stealing out on a dark night to meet, uh, you know, to to achieve union with God. So the dark night of the soul is 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 to be sought for. Whereas the way it's come into English, it said it means it means something like despair. Mm, you know. Yeah, I always thought it had a very very dark uh, thing, like a lost Leonard Cohen song. Or yeah, something. I, I suppose. I mean, it's fair enough in English. That um, is what it means now. You know, but the uh, in the, uh, the original, it was different. Yeah. You know. And writing erotic poetry in 16th century Spain probably wasn't particularly well appreciated. No, um, and in fact, it went even further back than that because it's a it's a section of the Bible that was. Um, it, I mean, it was written. You know, it, it's, it's in the I think it's in the it's in the Old Testament. So there was somebody way back then writing it. It was the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And it was a it was a part of the Bible that that in study Bible study in, with young monks and young priests it was usually um, it was usually kind of avoided, and but there were a couple of poets Spanish poets Fray Luis de Leon, who was actually a tutor of um, John of the Cross, translated it into Spanish. He was translating it from. Um, from Latin into Spanish, which kind of wasn't allowed, actually. You weren't really supposed to translate things just because you felt like it. You were supposed to get permission. So th- there was a lot of interest. Jo- John of the Cross was very interested in, and used a lot of the, the images in mm. his own poetry. I'm way out on a limb here, but uh, translating the Bible from Latin to Spanish, was the Latin the, the accepted version? Was that what was the... The Bible was... was it? originally written in Aramaic or that's right and so, then yeah so there were there were um versions in uh, Aramaic and again I'm not an expert in this field so I'm very much open to correction but <laughs> I, I when I was writing canticle I did know all of this so yeah. I yeah. forget um as far as I can remember it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic as you say and then it was translated by Saint Jerome you often see Saint Jerome in paintings with a lion at his side and the and the book um, the Bible, and this was in something like the second or the third century AD, and that was the uh, that was the version, the Latin version that was the uh, accepted version. I think it was called the Vulgate. They really weren't supposed to 
provide alternatives. I mean, like, um, you know, people like John, um, like Luis de Leon did actually speak Hebrew and he had translated it um, and got into a lot of trouble. Did you have a Bible at home when you were growing up? Did you grow up with a Bible? No. No, no we did the catechism. Yeah, the Bible, yeah, you're not say, supposed to no. think about the Bible yourself. You've got a priest to explain all that <laughs> yeah, to you. Yeah, there was a Protestant house down the road where they had right. a Bible. Know, you have yeah. to be a Protestant to yeah, know your Bible. We didn't yeah. need Bibles, we had priests. Yeah. But in actual fact, that notion that we didn't need Bible, we had priests, that's not that far away from Canticle, from the novel, because any sense of interpreting God without the help of the church wasn't allowed, isn't that? that well, that really is one of the main themes of yeah. the novel, that um, even it's a detective novel where this um, Dominican monk is given the task, this is 25 years after John of the Cross is dead, of finding his original manuscripts. Now, the original manuscripts really were lost, um, but there were many contemporaneous versions, which I saw mm. some of them in the, the National Museum in Madrid, 400-year-old manuscripts. It was such a such a thrill. But anyway, um, th- this th- the detective um, figure is charged with finding this and discovers that a lot of the thinking in St. John of the Cross's poems is problematic to the established church. One of the reasons being that he kind of... Um, circumvents he, he, the, the, he circumvents the interpretation the standard interpretation that we get from the um, established church I'm, I'm tempted to ask you did the inquisition get him in the end but I'm reading it so right okay <laughs> I well don't I, won't know, spoil I don't know what it. happens in the end so I won't spoil okay. it well um, um. He, somebody gets him in the end but as is so often the case it tends to be our um, our friends rather than our enemies who are you know more to be um, uh, to be more careful with yeah. them so yeah. keep your enemies Close, close and your friends closer your or is it the other way around yeah uh, something, something like that yeah um, I take it that quote's not from uh, John of the Cross no, no I don't uh, know who it's from uh, do you have um, particular favourite uh, uh, modern detective writers novels that you like yeah I, I, um, I'm always on the lookout for new ones I really like um, uh, Ian Rankin the Scottish detective Rabus and it's been televised a couple of times yeah and, um, well, of course, Inspector Morse is not all that recent now. But yes, those kind of... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever draw on that for, for when you're trying to write? I don't know, is it medieval or a Baroque or something? The, the Canticle. Yeah. It would be Renaissance, I suppose, yeah. the end of the, the f- f- 15th, the beginning of the 16th century. Or 16th and 17th, rather, sorry. Well, I think that, that there is a standard formula, almost, mm-hmm. which may not be obvious, but if you think of Sherlock Holmes, where you've got the genius uh, who does all the interpreting, who you know discovers, and then you've got his sidekick, and then you've got the, the genius guy always has some fatal flaw. You know, Sherlock Holmes was an opium addict. Um, Inspector Morse has got his, his booze. You know, they've all got a problem. Um, Rabus also is the booze and he's also a bit of a psychopath. So, um, and then you've got the, the, the measured, sensible sidekick. And um, it's like Don Quixote, actually, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. You know, so mm-hmm. that kind of formula really work then usually there's a love interest which doesn't work you know there's a usually some woman there um it's also interesting when the women are the um are, are the um uh, the detectives as well you know there, there still aren't that many of those are there no there's not many um the, there's a i think it's a south african one comes to mind when I, when I say that? comes to mind, I, I can't get any further Was than that. Was that the Ladies' Detective Agency? Yes, Alexander I think McCall so. Smith? Yeah, yes, I yeah. can't remember the name, but I read those, yeah. 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 They're very good, they're very witty. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, I suppose there is um, 
Miss Marple and, yes, and yeah. those kind of characters as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not it's not unknown. Stephanie Plum, is that her name? It was yeah. One for the much is an American an American one, yeah. So they're they're not they're not very um they're not very frequent no. Yeah. I suppose it's much more likely now to imagine a woman being the detective, but maybe back in a lot of those uh, kind of Sam Spade 1950s That's right, yeah. Uh, US cultural scenes. I just can't really envisage the woman no. getting that role. But we do see it on television a lot, increasingly. You know, there's, there's quite a lot of, um, you know, if you think of The Killing and uh, The Bridge and those Scandinoirs and, and even on, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, Irish, there have been a couple of Irish ones as well, where yeah. the, the detective, the main detective is um, is a woman. Yeah, some of the recent ones. Have, yeah, yeah, The Fall and... Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think in many ways, maybe television is, has overtaken us in that genre. Speaking of genres, would you read a poem for us and um, then we can get into why that particular poem? OK, um, I'm just looking at this poem from a book called Brink, which is written by Joe Burns and published by Terrace Press, which is my own little publishing company, and um, I publish poetry and literary fiction. And Joe Burns, who is from Maharafelt in Northern Ireland, actually lives in Germany. She married a German and her family, her children now are German. So she lives there. She's quite a frequent visitor to Ireland. And um, some years ago, not long after Taras Press um, was established in 2017, she sent me a manuscript and I published it, um, 2018 White Horses. And her second book with us, Brink, was published last year. And the poem that I'm going to read, because Joe has this mixed heritage as well from Northern Ireland and from Germany. She's very oh, alert to historical and contemporary themes and of course in Germany, with all of us in the last two years when we had all the vaccinations and masks and all of that there was a lot of disturbing activity in Germany and so this poem, I won't I'll let the poem speak for itself Fission In the group's telegram channel, the friend I lost shows herself, lifting her pseudonym after six months down the rabbit hole. I watch the dots blink as she types, Lieber bin ich Nazi als Grün. I rage and rub illusions from my eyes to witness this hate in plain view. She'd rather be a Nazi than a Green Party voter. That's very stark. I think it's a reflection of what Joe was going through and many others in Germany last year. We do, we didn't seem to have the same uh, volume and strength of anti-vax. I'm not saying it didn't exist, but and the anti-vax feeling also hooked on to many other movements that were reminiscent of uh, an earlier disturbing time in history. Um, I like the way Jo brings in parts of German. She has other poems that she brings in parts of Spanish and Irish and she makes it very understandable even to a reader who doesn't speak German because she has the translation woven in very skillfully. Do you, do you know where Jo lives? Um, she lives outside um, Dusseldorf. Yeah. Okay. Um I suppose for her, the experience of writing poetry, living in Germany as someone from Marafelt, is that when you're writing things about Ireland, you're writing from a, uh, a remove um, when the troubles appear in her poetry. That's right. Yeah. In her, her first book, um, uh, White Horses, um, 
I wouldn't say a lot, but some of the poems, some of the very significant poems, some they're about her childhood and some of them don't focus on the troubles, but some of them do. And of course, she would have been very young before the Good Friday Agreement. So there, there are poems here about going out, going out to the disco, you know, and having um, helicopters uh, hovering over you. And uh, so it's, and, and as you say, she's writing at a, a remove both of time and place. And so it's a very uh, it's a very stark lens through which to view. You know, you have li- you have the lived experience, but then you also have the lens of time and of being in a different place. Uh, it makes it very stark and very effective. Tell me about um, what it's like being a publisher, because did Joe simply send you some poems and say? Hey, do you like these? Will you publish these? She did. Uh, she that, did. That, yeah. does it, is it that simple? Is that it's, how it works? That was how it, that's how it works with me because, I, because the fact that um, I'm a very small publisher, it's just me, really. And, of course, I get other people to do things. You know, I, I you know, um, pay people to do things that I can't do or couldn't do very well, like typesetting and cover design and obviously printing. Um, but the whole administration of it and the editorial side of it is just me. And because I'm so small, I never invite, you know, I never put a notice on, on social media saying I'm open for submissions. I do have two windows when Tourist Press is open for submissions, just two months in the year, um, because I couldn't handle it the rest of the time. So really, basically, I don't, I actually don't know how Joe heard about me, I think, because I had published three books. Um, I published my own book, um, my own book of poetry, and then I published two books um, by two members of a workshop, two friends. And I think that by that time I had the website and maybe word was getting around. So um, Taurus Press has published um, 21 books now, 22nd coming out in the autumn. Um, only a few of them by me. <laughs> and is it is it a labour of love? I mean, when people take the time to send you the poetry, I presume you have to treat it with... Uh, the respect it deserves and give it a lot of time and read the poems and consider and take the time to write back to poets and stuff is that it sounds like there's a lot in that it's a lot of responsibility well I mean it is uh, and obviously you know I'm not saying I've never slipped up I mean it has happened once or twice that somebody's fallen through the net but normally because I'm a writer myself and I have been sending work out for decades and I'm very used to having the work rejected. I mean, in in the beginning, every rejection was a dagger in the heart, and then you kind of get to realise that this is this is the deal. You know, you do your work, you send it out, and you have to be able to. You get to a point where you can take rejection, and I now expect the work to be rejected, and every so often I'm pleasantly surprised. So I would be very gentle with people, um, but you know, if I have dozens of submissions and I can only take three or four then the, the 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 fact is that most people are going to be turned down. But I, I always point out that people get turned down for different reasons. And uh, sometimes it's purely that the writers, um, that the it's the editor's taste. Or it might be that the work is not ready. But that, that would be, I would always emphasise um, that this is, you know, this is not right for us now. And somebody else, some other publisher might, might like it. Is there a sense that... Um Women poets don't get a fair crack of the whip, or they don't get treated as um, as fairly as as men do. I think that used to be the case, but I don't think it is anymore. You know, certainly back in you know the sixties and seventies, Evan Bolin really blazed a trail. Um, I'm not saying she was the only, but she was the first person. She was the first woman poet that really put um, open. She opened a pathway really, and she was very supportive to many. Uh, Poets, uh, including especially women poets, who 
were able to build on her achievements and she helped many people in a very practical way, people that I know and I didn't know her myself but I know people who were very much helped by her and even the fact that she was a very eminent uh, poet, a woman poet of international standing was a breakthrough. Now um, I think there you know, there, there was a period of struggle after that. I'm not saying there isn't a struggle now but the, I think if anything probably the, um, the balance has tipped in the other way that there are, a, a, there's a lot of very many women poets. Yeah. And when then you're you're the one with the responsibility of reading the poetry and deciding whether it should be published or not, do you, do you lie awake at night wondering if you've just missed the next Paula Meehan or the next Theo Dorgan or something? Well, honestly, not really, because, no, of course, nobody would want to miss the next. I did, to be honest with you, the last time around, I did miss somebody very good. I did, um, because I knew as soon as I was looking at the, the, um, the submissions... Yes, this one is is a definite. I kind of have a, a rule in my own mind that I like to read them all before I accept any of them. This was a mistake because by the time I had got, I had finished, like about three weeks later, I had it took me to read them. She had been snapped up by somebody else, so um, that I regret. But that's the way it goes, you know. Um, and it was great for her that she got lots of offers and. It, she, very much deserved. So, no, the way I look at it is um, there are two things I'm looking for. One of them is that I have to think it's good and the other is I have to like it, which is not the same thing. Now, if it was a bigger outfit, I would be willing to publish something that I think is good that I don't particularly like. But because, you know, I'm only, you know, there's only maybe three or four coming out, then, you know, I have to like it too. And um, I, I feel I have to ask you, is, is publishing a place where you make a lot of money? Not yet, but who we live in hope. <laughs> you, you know, you know, you just never know. Somebody might, you know, I'm waiting for somebody to notice Canticle and think, you know, that is a perfect film, and you know, that'll be, um, that'll be the big payday. No, and really, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Really, most likely, you know. No. I presume with 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 poetry, it's less likely to happen. But with a novel, I mean, you know, do Harper Collins say, "Oh, we like that. We'll take that and republish that and make that our own"? And Possible. I mean, it's certainly we had had a great book last year by Anna Maria Crosserano, who is also a poet called In the Dark. It's about the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Anna Maria's grandfather was actually in the Spanish Civil War, um, and uh, it's a really stunning book. It got quite a lot of, you know, it got a lot of attention and very positive attention, and I think that it could be picked up, you know, and that's something that um, it's my next stage, if you like in the publishing to take the, 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 the books, well, my own book, um, Anna Maria's book and my own, and um, take steps to uh, maximise their potential. What do you think of um, the kind of spoken word poets, the, the very um, new and young and modern spoken word poets? Is that um, a genre that you like? Yes, I do. I like it very much. And, um, you know, I think it's been going for quite a long, maybe certainly been going for maybe 10, maybe more years. Mm. And I am. Um, I've heard some young rap poets uh, who have got this wonderful sense of rhythm, and 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 other people who are you know older people who are able to um, perform their work. One of the one of the earliest performance poets was Maureen Maeve. Now this is this is going back thirty years. She was really again someone who blazed a trail, and she has you know very eminent and has won many competitions, and her work definitely reads very well off the page as well. And there are some. You know, spoken word poets, the work, their work varies. Some of them, it really is written to be performed and rather like, like a song is written to be sung. And then you get Leonard Cohen, who a lot of whose work is actually, will actually stand up as poetry. And I think the same is true of some of the spoken word poets. So um, 
even if you don't hear Leonard Cohen singing the song, even if you don't know the song, if you just read the lyrics, it still functions as a poem? Yeah, I mean, Le- Leonard Cohen started off as a poet. You know, mm-hmm. he only started writing songs to make some money. Yeah. I think Morrissey also said that his lyrics functions as poetry without the music. That I wouldn't know. <laughs> I wouldn't like to say. Um, uh, let me jump again uh, for 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 a moment. Um, what's your link? What's your in to the to Beckett and his time in Germany? Oh yes, I'm, I found this really interesting. And um, one of the things that I did um, a very long time ago, um, and I'm talking about 1991. I had worked in RTE for a year and a half as education officer and when I left um, I started making um, documentaries with one of the producers there, Peter Mooney, who is sadly deceased, but he was a great friend of mine and the first one we made together was called A Stain Upon the Silence and it was a it was for to coincide with the first Beckett Festival in, I think it was 1991 and in the course of working on that I, I actually met very interesting people one of them was Walter Asmus who was an assistant director I think he was actually director at that stage of the Schiller Theatre in Berlin and he told me a lot of really interesting things about Beckett and his connection with the Schiller Theatre and I hadn't realised and it was only much later I realised as well the extent that um, one of the great um, strands of of influences in Beckett's work, as well as the Irish, the Anglo-Irish and the French, was the German connection, which I, I, I hadn't known. And um, I, I worked on that festival. Um, ah, yeah. Oh, it's a, a small world. What a, were you doing? Um, as a lowly lighting and sound uh, technician on that. And I remember Walter. But um, if I have this right, Walter worked with Beckett when Beckett was alive. That's right. And yeah. Beckett didn't want his work reinterpreted. So Walter was the... Oh, what's the word? He was the, the guide. Gatekeeper. Mm. The gatekeeper. Mm. I was being generous. but mm. um, And he said, no, this is how um, Sam wanted it done and this is how it is. So um, it was is, is, is Walter on your documentary? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, and I actually listened to it last night in preparation for coming to talk to you. Uh, okay, and it really well, it was a real trip yeah, down memory lane. Yeah. But... Um, and of course, there are only snippets of that. I spoke to him for about an hour and there are only snippets of that conversation in it. But it's really interesting. I mean, I did it. One of the things yeah. he said here, I, I just made a note of it. He said, he said it was the experience of my life to work with Beckett and to see the compassion that he treated people with both in everyday life and in his business in the theatre. So, and he worked with him for 15 years. He did, I do remember him speaking about the, um, there were some uh, attempts to, stage Beckett in different ways you know like having a, a feminist version where you had Vladimir and Estragon were played by women and Beckett was dead against this but I was reading I, I was skimming through the, the biography the Nelson biography last night again and apparently Beckett was not completely strict about it that he would um, he would yield sometimes if he knew the people if he trusted them if he liked them so that there are there were some kind of variations but yeah mostly he had his he had a very clear idea not only of the text and of the stagecraft but of how people would move you know um, one of the words that was mentioned that uh, Walter Asmus mentioned was balletic that and it's true if you think of the even the the, the, the you know the usual plays the most famous plays there is a very strong sense of the, the how the movement goes and that it's almost as though it's a dance between the characters yeah they the characters really actually walk in any kind of normal uh, way tramps or whatever those kind of characters they have very exaggerated types of walks and yes, stuff. Yes, yes. Um, 
So were you a Beckett expert to be the one that Peter Mooney brought in to do the, the interviews and to do that piece? This may sound surprising, but at the time, there didn't seem to be a lot of interest in Beckett. Now, obviously, there was enough interest to have the festival, but it was the first Beckett festival, right? I, I can only assume that Peter couldn't find anybody else, really, to do it. Um, or maybe he just really, really wanted me to do it. I don't know. I had actually studied Beckett in French uh, at uni. So I was familiar I was a bit with, with Beckett from the... And I had also studied him. I studied drama at uni as well. I had also studied him in drama. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't say being an expert, but I knew a bit about him. You know. And did you think he was good and did you like him? Yes, I did. And I, I had also been a teacher and there were a couple of years where Waiting for God was on the Leaving Cert syllabus and I got... There was a choice. I, in two years in a row, I got my Leaving Cert class to study Waiting for Godot. And we took them to the gate as well to see it. And years later, I met people in the Department of Education when I was doing other work, research work. And they said, you know, in 1989 or whatever, um, there were only two schools in the country that did the Becca option. I said, I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we did some interesting things because the I- Irish Film Centre at the time, it was before the IFI, um, they had a couple of showings of very interesting things, you know, like... Um, take a stone from the pocket of my my right pocket and all that. You know, who was it did that? Was it Patrick McGoodin did it? Or was it Jack? I can't remember. Anyway. Is that that the Malone novel or something? Yes, we saw that. And the sequence of the stone. Yeah. 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 As Um, well as Waiting for God at the Gate. So, so, I know. For for those who aren't familiar with the taking the stone from the pocket, could you want to explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's on the, if you want to hear a real expert doing it, Barry McGovern. Uh, it's on the, the Staying Upon the Silence, which is on the RTE gar- archive. You just have to Google it. I, I was amazed. I found it so easily. But it's a, a dramatisation of a few pages from, it's Malone. I think, I think Malone so. dies. Malone yeah. dies, I think. And he's talking about being hungry. And he says he's got sucking stones in his two pockets. And he says, I take a, so basically he, he, instead of just sucking them in any old order, he wants, to, he has a system. And he says, I take a stone from the pocket of my right you know, it's work. I put it in my mouth and I suck it and I put it back. So this goes on. It's kind of like, um, it's a bit of um, vaudeville, Charlie Chaplin-esque type thing. And it goes on for quite a long time. And it's really very funny. And especially when Barry McGovern does it so beautifully. What was Beckett doing in Germany? Well, there was a pretty strong German connection. He had a family connection in that his uncle, William Sinclair, actually lived in Germany in Kessel. And he had a daughter... Peggy and Beckett fell in love with Peggy and they had a love affair and that fizzled out so this would be when he was in his 20s and Peggy sadly died at a very young age and seemed to have been uh, you know like a kind of a lost love of Beckett's she turns up in various places and um, he then in his late 20s I think he might have been about 20 or 29 1936 to 37 he spent six months in Germany studying the language and also studying the um, the art and he travelled around Berlin, Hanover, where else? I think he went to a couple of other places. But he was there studying. He had a lot of contacts. And he actually kept a very, um, an informal diary, but a very interesting diary. And I was able to read some extracts. Again, it's, it's very Googleable. Um, Beckett's diaries from, from Germany. And he says where he went, who he met, what he saw. And it was very interesting to see what he couldn't see as well, because it was at the time when the, he, he, he talked about listening to Goebbels and Hitler on the radio. Um, He talked about uh, paintings that he wasn't able to see because the Nazis had designated them 
degenerate. Uh, some of them he was able to use his contacts to see and uh, people that he met who were not able to paint, books that he wasn't able to get. So it was a, it was a dangerous time to yeah, be in Yeah, I was thinking a lot of people maybe in the kind of avant-garde space where Beckett was but getting out of Germany and he was going into Germany. Yeah. I'm sure the kind of German expressionism movement and that they were they were fleeing. Exactly, um, exactly. I think, uh, you know, it, it was the time when people were beginning to realise this was this was not going to go away. But um, interestingly enough, um, I discovered that um, he was very interested in German expressionism but I also discovered, and I, I only discovered this recently, um, that he, there was a painter, a romantic painter that he was very interested in who was called Caspar David Friedrich, a romantic painter from the 19th century. And he said that a painting, one of his paintings, which is called, um, now it's Zwei, my German is really pretty uh, rudimentary, but let's see how I get on with this. Zwei Männer betrachten den Mond. Two, Two men. Contemplating the moon. And he said that that painting was um, the inspiration for Waiting for Godot. And you just happen to have that painting yeah. uh, in front of us. Yeah, now. there it is on my tablet. So it's two men, um, a kind of a rural scene mm-hmm. uh, with um, a big kind of ghostly tree in the background and the moon. Yeah. And so that, that was the piece then for the stage set. It's kind for, of the iconic stage, co- yeah. stage yeah. set for Waiting for yeah. Godot, isn't it? The two yeah. spindly... Two spindly uh, figures, the tree and the moon, and I just found that fascinating. That this it was this was a, a visual. He said himself he was quoted as saying this was the inspiration, or the source was the word to use, not inspiration. Yeah. This was the source for waiting for Godot, yeah. um, and uh, I thought that was a really interesting link. Because of your interest um, in Beckett, and because of you learning some German, and then with that very romance kind of background, do you feel very European? I definitely think so. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty eclectic in what I identify as. I mean, I definitely identify as being Irish. I have an Irish passport um, and Scottish. Um, I don't have a Scottish passport yet because you can't have them, but who knows one day. Um, and definitely, um, yes, I definitely feel European. You know, I feel very at home. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's been a wonderful um, benefit to be able to be so mobile and to be able to travel around Europe almost if it, almost as if it's one country but and yet with all these wonderful different languages and cultures. You were saying earlier that you lived in France and Spain. Yes I did. I lived in Spain for a year uh, when I was a student and um, in the middle of my my degree Where, in Madrid. In Madrid yeah. yeah. I still go back quite often. I still have friends there from that time and I was in France for just three months and I was in Portugal for just a few weeks and um, I again I still go back you know when I can and yeah. And one of the great things about being a writer, a novelist, I suppose, is that uh, research time that you get to spend uh, when you were writing Canticle, going to Toledo and these yeah, old I did. Spanish I did. cities. Yeah, I went to Toledo. That, I went yeah. to Avila, um, and uh, which was one a very important pl- uh, place in the life of John of the Cross. He was a great friend of Teresa of Avila. Um, I went to Ubuda where he died and it's a place I would never have gone to Ubuda it's a beautiful place just a couple of hours north of Granada and um, yeah I went to Madrid of course and it had spent 
many happy hours in the Sala Cervantes looking at 400-year-old manuscripts, which has got to be a lovely way to spend a day. So when you're planning your next novel, will some of it take place in Madrid and some of it in Paris and some of it in Berlin? So actually, that you have to then spend some Actually, time the one that I'm almost <laughs> finished, in fact, is uh, is actually Lisbon. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. the next one is, a, is, is set at the time, a couple of hundred years later, of the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. So I've been brushing up on my Portuguese and I did actually um, visit to do a bit of research um, in the National Library there and take pictures and stuff. But I really need to go back and uh, it's on my list. So Yeah, I, I was there OK. And I was, I'm trying to remember that, that maybe it's paintings or there's something about how Lisbon used to look before then because it was changed quite dramatically yeah, by that. Yeah, the, the earthquake completely raised it. All, mm. n- not completely, not completely, but the part that's, you know, the centre where it, the, 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 um, the roads and the streets are very regular, mm. that, has, that all dates back to just after the earthquake, you yeah. know, because all of that part of the, the city was, was, was in ruins. So, yes, it is a great excuse to go where you want to go and it yeah. gives you something to do there. Mm. And as someone who's um, uh, Scottish and then living here for a long time and then very engaged with that romance world and then with the German thing as well. Um, th- does it make you kind of sad when you see that kind of Brexit and even that mentality that kind of pulls places apart? Yeah, I, I, I'm utterly shocked, really, at what has happened. And and uh, I don't know anybody who's... Obviously, I, I, my circle are people who are like-minded, I suppose, but, you, you know, you would expect to know somebody. I don't know anybody who is happy about Brexit and it's just um, a tragedy, you know, and I just think that I'm not surprised that so many people are applying for Irish passports. And apart from the political stuff and all that, is there a kind of narrowing of culture that happens when when things like that happen? I think so. I mean, even making travel more difficult and I mean, even all of the Erasmus journeys that have had to be cancelled because of Brexit and all the funding opportunities that are gone and just just making people more uh, and yet and yet paradoxically there's so many English people who live in places like Spain and Portugal happily very happily and don't want to leave you know so it is very it's really incomprehensible that that never really occurred to me but I wonder does it mean there'll be far fewer opportunities for British students to go and spend time in great European cities I think so I mean I I think it's happened already you know and that's clearly going to be a loss isn't it I think there's a big difference with Scotland because Scotland has always had a very strong connection particularly with France yeah. you know Bonnie, Bonnie Prince Charlie was practically French yeah, in fact yeah. he might have even been French Mary Queen of Scots was brought up in the French court you know there's always been that kind of um, you know sympathy and, and a kind of historical um, connection so I think the Scots have always seen themselves as being part of Europe um, but of course you know you don't get the choice yeah maybe um, we'll look at wrapping up on uh, another poem Sure. So, will I read another one of Joe's poems? Yeah, Brink? yeah. Tell yeah. us about um, why you chose it. Um, this is the last one in her book, Brink, and again, it's because I've chosen this because it's so topical. Uh, I think she wrote it during the COVID crisis when it was perhaps just beginning to ease, and then you have all of these um, uh, strange um, currents of thinking. March. The populists' open mic is on and the crowd is waving Reichsburger flags. Someone is harping on about vaccines, gates, reptilian overlords and, of course, 5G and Rothschild. I meet up for the first time with a friend since the lockdown. We've the same intention, to spectate a farce, the one our kids are facing. 
But we're happy, despite the distance, sitting together in our mission. We pop too many corks and prost on the pier, above the rabbit hole, tipsy, dangling over murky water. Summer's coming, but we're split, conspiracy or truth. And who's to say which is which, or even who is who? I've lived division in my youth. Now I face the moon expanding with a breath that's not my own in a land that's not my home. We are witnesses, whatever comes. That's a lovely poem. There's a lot going on in that, isn't there? Yeah. I love the where she says that she's um, she's lived divisions in her own life. Yeah, yeah. 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 I wonder... Um, does she try to translate those into German? Well, it's something, again, it's something that I would like to happen. I would like, yeah. so if there's anybody out there, any German publisher listening who would like to <laughs> take on two uh, really excellent poetry books and translate them, you know where to find me. You've done some tr- some translations too? Yes, but not not all that much. Um, uh, with Anna, Anna Maria Crosserano, um, who is the writer of In the Dark and, and a good friend, some years ago she got a, um, a commission to translate a book of poems for the um, Colombian Embassy in London, and I, I, she, she brought me in to work with her on it, and we did it together. Uh, so it was now it's now it's a bilingual edition. So, but I'm not a professional translator. I really enjoy translating, and I've translated some poems of John of the Cross, and I might publish them at some point. But uh, as I say, it's not my profession. It's it's a it's a very specialised area, I presume, um, translating poetry. Yes, I mean, translating of any kind, I think, is a very thankless task. It's very highly skilled, very creative. You're almost recreating the work. And you hardly ever see the translator's name on the front cover. Sometimes you don't even see the translator's name at all, which I think is scandalous. The uh, the Dublin Book Award, don't they give a, a quite a big slice of the, of the prize? Yes, to, yes. To the translator. Yeah, well, the, of course, that wonderful book that translated by Frank Wynne that won it um, just, la- just the other day, just last week, yeah. Which one is that? Alice Senator. So we have to put that into your recommendations. Okay, I'll think uh, about my recommendations, yeah. yeah. We have to put some of your work as well into your recommendations. Uh, Absolutely. You've been very modest today and you haven't... uh, Absolutely. Well, the the Taurus Press website, and again, if you Google Taurus Press, T-U-R-E-S, Taurus as an Irish for journey, then it's all on it. But I will send you a list of my recommendations and you can, I don't know if you... Do you put them up on your podcast page? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we put them all up with it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, include, yeah. I'll include my own. And, uh, and I highly recommend Canticle as well. Thank you. That's the novel. Especially if you're a film producer. Especially if you're a film producer. Especially if you're a, a very wealthy film producer. Mm. Um, okay, uh, Liz, it was fantastic to have you today. Thanks very much. Lovely, lovely um, to meet you and to talk to you. Feeling that? Uh, thank you. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen.